It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I'm your civics teacher, your neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams, and I'm happy you made it to class this morning, this Black History Month morning. Shout out to everyone who is in their own way, learning and celebrating the great history of African-American in this country. And I must say, every February, I see conversations on social media about people talking about this is the worst Black History Month ever, or because of the actions of people who are doing racist things or entities or organizations, they're always like, oh, this is the worst Black History Month, or like, we need a do-over or anything like that. But I, I have to remind folks that like nobody else is responsible for teaching our history or for celebrating our accomplishments and in history, we are responsible for that. And so I guess you would be disappointed if you were relying on other institutions and other entities to celebrate your contributions in history. But I want to challenge you to think differently about that. And if you listen to Urban View on a regular basis, you know, celebrating our accomplishments and Black history in general is weaved through all conversations here on Urban View. You listen to Karen, if you're part of narrative, <laughs> you know, we, we celebrate our accomplishments, our excellence, our trifling, <laughs> if that's a word, we bring light to that on a regular basis. And, you know, yes, there is a time where, you know, we want to challenge those who make money off of our community to recognize and to invest in our communities. There's definitely space to challenge those entities and institutions to do so. But I want to also challenge us to sort of break out, break outside of the norm. And even if you're listening and you're not part of the African-American community, you know, to reach beyond, you know, the stories of the stalwarts that have done amazing contributions, not only to our people, but to this country, but dig a little deeper because there are millions of Black people who have contributed to our community, to our society, to this country, to this world. And we don't have to just rely on the regular names and fast facts, if you will. Part of, you know, my challenge is always to tell young people, even tell adults to sort of start in their own family. And, you know, this is a time to gather around, whether it's a family Zoom call or anything like that, and hear the story of your family. Were they part of the Great Migration? Did they move from the South to the Midwest or up North? And who was it that came? And what did they do? Who was the first in your family to go to college, to own a business? That investment, being able to tell the story so that your future generations know that story and that history, the story of your family, the story of the families in your community are just as much part of Black history 
and Black excellence as that of the story of W.E.B. or Dr. Martin Luther King or Ida B. Wells, which are amazing, amazing stories. Obviously not taking away from that at all, but it is a opportunity for you also to dig deeper in your community and spend some time with the young people in your family and in your community and not just relying on teachers, on the school system to teach your history. You know, what better way for your family to learn their history than from you? So, you know, that's just a little tidbit on this Black History Month. You know, my family certainly has, we, we have family Zooms and family prayers and you know, we try to tell the story on a regular basis, particularly because as my grandmother recently passed and now, you know, there are not that many in our family who have that connection of that that story, right? So my grandmother, her parents, parents were enslaved, not that far away, right? So if you lose that generation and don't have the stories to be able to continue on, you lose that history. So while they're here, and that's not just for Black folks, that's for white folks too, <laughs> you know, listen to the story of your family. You know, I know it might be hurtful or shameful if you are having a conversation with your family and perhaps white folks, maybe your family were on the other side. Maybe your family were on the other side at the Woolworth counter, you know, throwing paint and saying not in my backyard and all of that kind of stuff. But it's important to tell those stories. No one is saying that you individually committed those acts. But knowing that history and story is really important, uncovering that truth is really important because it wasn't Black people hurting themselves. There were other people <laughs> that were actually perpetuating that. There were other people that actually passed those laws that were doing uh, uh, citizenship tests and, you know, count the marbles in the jar, right? So it wasn't some aliens doing that. So it's important to uncover that work. In this Black History Month, I just want to say yesterday, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP Founders Day was yesterday. The organization is 113 years old. And, you know, some of the Star Wars I mentioned in terms of the founders, yes, it was founded by Black and white folks in order to address the plight of Black folks in this country. And there are a number of institutions and organizations that exist that had different histories. I'm proud to be a part of this organization and continue my advocacy through this, you know, the oldest civil rights organization in this country, which has a history and a legacy of making extraordinary strides to make this country live up to what it says it is to the rest of the world. Because, uh, you know, the country could not exist as it is. It could not be the land of the free without us forcing the end of slavery. It could not be the land of opportunity without us challenging legal segregation, challenging discrimination, challenging in the courts, in making use of all of the structures set in place. And, you know, shout out to all of those, those general members of the NAACP on the ground who are doing great work in their community. And shout out to Brooklyn NAACP, who is also, I'm happy to be the president of that branch. And we are celebrating 100 years. It's actually more than that, but because of the pandemic, we couldn't do our centennial in the year. We're actually 102 years old, but, you know, pandemic happened. So we're celebrating this year. <laughs> it's not a big deal. But to that, I, I do have a little bit 
of a Black History Month show for you today, just a little bit. There are not, you know, you hear the conversations often. People be like, I marched with King. And then I had this joke when President Obama was president. And I was like, you know, in the future, you know, I campaigned or I worked for Barack Obama is going to be the new I March with King, knowing that everybody wasn't like, you know, on board with Dr. Martin Luther King and everybody wasn't on board with President Obama. So, you know, but people will rewrite history in that instance. But the guests I have coming to talk to us today actually marched with King as a young person, as a teenager growing up in Jim Crow South. And she's going to talk a bit about her history, her first civic action, which is tied to those stories of the modern civil rights movement. But, you know, that's not all we're going to talk about. We're also going to talk about social workers. A shout out to social workers. If you're a social worker, hit me up on social media. I want to shout you out. You know, we we need more social workers and we need social workers to be paid a comparable wage. But we're going to talk to see Virginia Fields who is going to talk about her first civic action being engaged as a young person in the Jim Crow South, but also fast forwarding to her incredible political leadership and community leadership here in New York. And now nationally, as she has the National Commission Leadership on Health. So we're going to talk to her about that and about social work and about so many other things when we come back from the break. We'll be right back with more Sunday Civic. All the wahala, all the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Welcome back to Sunday Civics. Now, have you ever wondered why I use my first initial of my first name? I know many of you are always trying to figure out what my actual full first name is. (laughs) You try to get it out of me. You try to DM and entice me with treats and things, but you're not going to get it. But my next guest is actually one of the inspirations for me using just my first initial. She's currently the president and founder of the National Black Leadership Commission on Health, formerly served in the New York City Council and as Manhattan Borough President, among other things. She was the first Black woman here in New York City to run for mayor, which I had to remind people of last mayoral cycle. And I am so happy that she made time finally to join us. Welcome to the front of the class. I'm so excited for you to meet one of my sheroes, C. Virginia Fields. <laughs> well, Joy, thank you so much. And it's funny that you said welcome because we've been trying to do this for a while and our schedules just kept conflicting, but we are here and I am very excited. So did you actually know that you were one of the inspirations for me only using the L? No, I did not. Yes. So when I was adjusting my name, so, you know, my family has always called me Joy. No one has really used my first name, but I didn't want to drop it completely because I like it. Um, You know, I didn't want to drop the name completely. And so as I was starting my political career, I was looking at the folks who inspire me at the time. And it was the Virginia Fields, H. Carl McCall. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to be L. Joy Williams. Well, that's great. We never know 
whose lives we will touch or actions that we might encourage people to take. So that's really good to hear that. No, I did not. All of us have a story behind it, but I. <laughs> yes. Well, because of that, and, and we believe in the power of storytelling here, I want you to share the story of your first civic action. You know, I've been thinking about that, and let me put this in context. First of all, I think I've been civically active all my life, but growing up in Birmingham, Alabama, the segregated South, on the actual Jim Crow laws in the 50s and 60s, I felt compelled to get involved in the community while I was certainly involved in my school because I ran for my school treasurer and I never forgot my thing. If you want your treasury to have a financial spark, cash your vote for Virginia Clark. That was my nickname. And how corny is that? But I was. So I was always active in school, but on the community level, when I probably was about 14 or 15, I went around the community helping older people study to take the test to vote. Because at that time, there was a test that you literally had to take. And there might have been maybe like about 10 or 15 pages, I don't remember. But they asked questions that clearly had nothing to do with your ability to vote like, What's the name of the state bird, the state flower? You might not even know the name of the lieutenant governor because that was not necessarily a person who was known or, or did things actively. So I went around the community and helped them study so that they could go down and take that test. And I will never forget that when those who took the test and they passed, the excitement on their faces and the joy that they presented. I'll never forget that. And that is what propelled me, you know, to stay involved and to get involved and stay involved. But also growing up in the segregated South, I very early attended what was known as the Monday night mass meetings where we had phenomenal speakers coming in, including Dr. King and others. And I got to hear them because I attended those meetings with my mother. So all of that factored into me getting involved civically, marching as a teenager in Birmingham in 1963 with Dr. King doing the civil rights protests when all the young people came out fill the jails and actually led to the turnaround in that city. So all of that was a part of my earlier experiences of civically becoming involved and that has continued today. But I'll never forget the voting and how that made a difference. And I'll have to admit today, when I encounter people and they proudly say to me, well, I don't vote, I just leave. Because I don't have tolerance for that. Can't deal with it. It's uh, maybe, as Dr. King used to say, conscientious stupidity or just stupidity. I don't know. But I don't have patience for that. Mm. 
I absolutely love that story. One of the, you know, reasons I started the show was an inspiration from, you know, that time frame of people. And I, I, I talk about it often where you're fighting the unjust system as it is, but then you're also preparing your community and your people to actually engage in that system that you know is racist and broken, right? So that's you, you know, coming in and, you know, teaching people this test. Yes, the test is racist. It doesn't mean, like, it shouldn't be applied in the first place. And so we're challenging that. We're protesting that. We're, you know, trying to get rid of that, but then also preparing people to take it so that they can vote the people out, you know, that have put these barriers up. And it reminds me of where we are today, you know, talking about things like voter ID or other measures that are being put into place as potentially blocking people or restricting who is eligible to vote and that we should be doing that dual work, right? You know, challenging the laws, challenging the policy, while also preparing people. If they got to get ID, let's get them ID. You know, if they need to register or sort of address those things at the same time. I, I wonder from your perspective, what that says about us in general, right? That we should, yes, we got to complain about something, but we actually have to complete an action in order to dismantle you know, those barriers that exist and not just in voting, you can just think about that across the board, whether it's economically or health-wise. No, I fully agree with you that we have to fight all fronts. We cannot afford to just march and take no other action. We cannot afford to just talk about this and take no further action. But we have to address it on all fronts. So as you said, in those states where ID and other draconian measures are being taken with respect to restricting one's right to vote, helping to prepare people, where they, especially like for absentee ballots. If they're saying you can't get absentee ballots because of ABC, XYZ, let's figure out how to get those absentee ballots while we still fight to change the policies. And that's what I think is so important as we, you know, engage in this fight today. One of the reasons I um, actually made a decision to run for public office is, of course, going, moving forward in terms of my own career as a city council member, because I'm a social worker by profession after receiving my master's in social work. I worked in the field in various capacities and, uh, I always felt we are trying to work with families and work within the institutions to help families change and have, you know, have an impact on their lives or change. But in the process of that, what I knew I wanted to do was to change the system. I wanted to be on the other side, making the policies about what got funded, because I knew that if those after-school programs were not funded in the community I sought to represent here in Central Harlem, mothers, fathers, caretakers would not have a place to send their children after school 
and their children most likely would end up in the streets. I knew that if some seniors did not get the meals at the senior citizen centers, they, they may not have a meal that day. That might be the only meal that they had. So I wanted to be on that side to continue to educate my community about the problem and to mobilize people to get involved. But I wanted to help change the policies, set budgets, and that is what motivated me to run for office in 19, when did I first run for office? I think it was 1988, 89. I ran for city council against an incumbent. And it's, you know, most people think you can't defeat an incumbent. But I won five times his numbers because of what I just said, wanting to change policies, make a difference while we still did work on the ground, encouraging parents to become involved with the school boards at that time, helping them to understand it's not enough to just complain that you don't have this in your school. Who's making the policy to get the resources into your school? And you need to vote because people we elected make a difference. So you're absolutely correct. We have to fight on all fronts. So I want to go back to your career as a social worker before we get into your political career. Just just a few moments. So it was, you know, the 70s and New York City is a different different beast at the time, if you will. Talk a bit about those various positions you held in terms of doing social work. I'm, you know, fascinated right now with social workers, the lack of social workers that exist in our communities and the field of social work in general and how it can be beneficial to families, how it's beneficial in the education system and the healthcare system. And yet we don't really fund social workers and pay them a, a comparable wage. But it seems like a necessity, just like I, I would say it's like nurses in practice, right? Like in a different way. Talk to us about the social work in general and how we are suffering without a full investment in social work. Well, as you know, social work is a helping field. And coming out of my background, as I mentioned earlier, growing up in Birmingham, I'm the such, you know, draconian laws that just restricted everything, where you lived, where you went to school, where you worshiped, how you were supposed to think, all of that. And of course, we began to see that change. And as I graduated from Knoxville College in Tennessee, I had a professor who thought I had more to offer. I was ready to go out, get a job, get married, have children make some money. So he encouraged me to apply to go to the School of Social Work. And because of my interest that I had always expressed, I wanted to help, wanted to make a change. So as a field about help moving into social work, I worked in several capacities. I, my first job here in New York was working at the first release program for men at that time, work release program for men who were within certain max out days of their sentencing of their time in prison. So I would go out to Rikers Island. We would interview the men and the facility was on 118th street between Adam Power and Malcolm X. So I worked there as a social work coordinator and our job 
was to help reintegrate them into the community, find jobs, uh, reconnect with their families, restore them in the community. And that was very of interest to me because I felt that we were really helping, but became very discouraged maybe after two years of being there and I left. And I left because the city was not living up to its commitment of finding jobs for these men. So when they would go out on the weekend for, you know, passes on the weekend, many of them had gone and they never came back. So of course they were picked up and that added more time to their sentence. I was discouraged because we made a promise that we would help them find employment or to go to school, and we didn't do that. From there, I went to the Children's Aid Society, where I worked with families, drug prevention program, because during that time, too, so many of the young people were being exposed to drugs, and it was right in their own home and their families. And I worked with Children's Aid in the foster care adoption making it possible for children who could possibly be adopted to, 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 to make that happen. Because sometimes children are kept into that system far too long and there's no relationship with the parent, no possibility of them returning home, but judges were not making the decision. And many of those, the, the others who were making the decisions did not have the best interests of that child. Then after that, I went to the National Board of the YWCA. One thing about the National Board of the YWCA I like, and it is still their purpose today, to eliminate racism by any means necessary. So I felt I had stepped back into space where I, you know, had started. So I say all of that to say that social workers understand needs. They don't always connect needs to resources. And as I have taught a class on leadership as an adjunct professor at uh, New York University, Graduate School of Social Work and Columbia at different times, I always said to the uh, social work students, you have more information about what needs to be done that most people in other positions, including elected officials, because you're working with these families, you've got to be able to make the connection between what you do, what the needs are, and bringing the resources together with that. But they have never used, in my opinion, and I've said this to the social workers here in the city and nationally, I don't think social workers have used their positions to lead in this way and have thought about politics and political decisions out there, somebody else, we don't do that. Uh, we don't get involved with politics. And as we know, politics controls everything from the womb to the tomb, as we like to say. So they have, there has not been that level of an advocacy that drives the, the importance of the role of social work. Now we're hearing a lot, of course, now as it relates to violence in our cities across the country about gun control and other issues where social workers as mental health workers perhaps should be brought in. Maybe that will help to elevate this discussion. And I'm going to add another point, something I heard during the, during the time, you know, very sad time. 
when the two officers' funerals were taking place. That police office was in New York, sir, somewhere around $42,500. I didn't check it out, see if it's true. But I would say, as I'm speaking, if that's the case, that's another salary level that needs to be. Mm. Well, I, I mean, I'm certainly thinking, just rethinking how we structure care in our communities. And I think social workers are, you know, in addition to mental health workers and sort of others are, can contribute greatly in our, our different spaces. And, you know, I, I find that those who have a social work background have a, a different level of compassion, empathy, understand the necessity to help triage what people need right, in particular situations, because that's what you have to do with families. Like, what does this family need in the immediate term? <laughs> you know, what do we need to, what services or programs do they need in order to live sustainable lives, you know, going forward, right? It's that kind of triage that we need in our public discourse in general, particularly in communities that have been historically under-resourced and, and marginalized. And that's related to you know, your role today and talking about health in our communities and all aspects of health. The National Black Commission or National Black Leadership Commission on HIV AIDS has now evolved into the National Black Leadership Commission on Health. And you're the founder and sort of, you know, one of the leads in that. Talk about the reason for that evolution, given what's going on in our communities today. And again, just another point on the social workers is that, again, social workers have the information because of the work that they do. But I still have not seen, and it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist because in some cities, in some areas, social workers are leading the way. And we have seen more social workers go into uh, elected office. I don't remember how many are in Congress now, but I know Barbara Lee was one of the first social workers, among others, who, you know, became members of Congress. So social workers have the information based on the work that they do. And I think that there just has to be a continued confidence in knowing that uh, you do, there's much to do or offer in terms of bringing about change and not be afraid to step out and leave based on that information. With respect to the organization, the National Black Leadership Commission on Health, as you said, which was formerly known as the National Black Leadership Commission on AIDS, back in November of 2019, just before the pandemic hit, the board approved the name change, a mission, and a vision statement after a two-year rebranding process. Well, we looked at the work that we do and how we do it, and it was certainly much broader than HIV AIDS. And we recognize that HIV does not stand alone. Intersectionality between HIV AIDS and these other health-focused areas that we now work on was very clear. All of them, Blacks are disproportionately impacted by all of them. So we expanded because we wanted to have, through our name, and understanding more about the work that we do, and it was not just on HIV AIDS. So that's part of how or why it led us to that, helping to focus on 
and a better understanding of what we do, how we do it, why we do it, the understanding of the intersexuality between HIV AIDS and hepatitis C, cardiovascular disease, breast cancer, prostate cancer, mental health, sickle cell, and diabetes. Those are the eight health focus areas now in which we are uh, addressing. And through advocacy, policy, and action, we seek to promote prevention of diseases and seek to achieve equity among Blacks and African Americans throughout this country. As a national organization, we have partnerships with over 140 groups nationally and affiliates in about 12 cities. And through our work, we do a lot of education about behaviors as well as resources. There are some things that we can do better about, including like, for example, the issue, and we hear our mayor talk a lot about it now, diabetes. But the way we eat, exercise, so we've started a program in Tuskegee in one of the high schools, started with the ninth grade, and it is our plan to follow them straight through for the next three years about obesity, education, what is the what is obesity, what are some of the implications of obesity, including diabetes and cardiovascular disease as one certainly grows older and providing resources to those students in order to help them navigate issues related to this and calling upon, you know, broader community to get engaged. So that's partly why we shifted because we wanted people to know and not just think HIV while we still do that work too. Well, one of the other things is, you know, as folks are advocating in the healthcare space on some of these issues that, um, as you mentioned, diabetes, HIV, AIDS, sickle cell, a number of other things that particularly have a disproportionate impact on people of African descent. What is the ask really to governments and municipalities? What should they be doing? What should we be demanding they do to address some of these health concerns? I think one of the things we, we, we need to do and don't do, we need an understanding of the data that is driving this. For example, every time a medical person, governmental person, or whomever, in the uh, height of COVID would say, we did not know that these diseases were disproportionately impacting African-Americans, thereby making us more vulnerable to COVID in terms of mortality. And to say they didn't know, the data is there. It has been there for a long time. It is irrefutable, but not being given the attention and the resources to begin to address some of, you know, these critical issues. So I think one of the things government should do, we should pressure for data focused on our communities, especially among those diseases that disproportionately impact us. And in our studies, it is those of uh, those eight focus areas. And based on that, fighting 
for resources and funding to bring into communities where the needs are the greatest, the resources in order to provide for the care and policy changes so that allocation of resources and practices are sustainable. So data, resources, following the data, providing the resources and policy changes so that it's not just the one time that we build a health center in communities where we might have large, uh, you know, number of persons living with diabetes and they do not have the resources there, but have to travel along the distance to get the care that they need and thereby most many times neglecting to do that. And the health problem just continues to escalate. So those are some of the things that I think that we can do. What's interesting also, Joy, is that we've all seen and heard, again, doing at the height of the pandemic, the number of organizations, including the American Medical Association, coming out with the statements that racism is a public health issue. I think now over 200 cities and or states rather have 200 cities have declared racism as a public health issue. It sounds good. It appears as if policymakers are doing something about it. But as we have started looking at the resolutions and the statements right now, it is just words. So we need. Yeah. (laughs) So that's a good point because I see all of the headlines about that. You know, and everybody's like, yeah, and we're doing it. I'm just like, but what does it, what is it going to do? Like, what is it going to do? Are you going to put more resources in anything? Does it, you know, declare, similar to when you declare something a national emergency? right? It usually comes with additional resources that that executive leader, whether it be the governor or the president or others, is the reason why they declare national emergency um, when there's a hurricane or a tornado, because it allows a more lax set of rules and resources to be able to address that particular area, right? Tornado happens. We declare the state of emergency. Now, you know, the EPA, the, you know, environmental protection, like all of them can come together and do things more quickly than they would have in other situations because there is a disaster. Well, what is the benefit of passing a resolution on racism as a public health crisis or a state of emergency if it doesn't also come with the resources to address that? Like, what is the urgent thing? What what are the policies that are being released or monies being able to flow to address some of those urgent needs? There you go. That's it exactly, Joy. And that's one of uh, my concerns. And we are questioning that, especially here in New York City. And in New York State, because Governor Hochul signed a number of legislative acts about a few weeks or so ago, where New York State declared racism as a public health issue. And of course, back in October, New York City laid out its resolution as a of racism as a public oh. health issue. So we're in the process of following up to say, okay, 
words really good. Glad that was done. Very impressive. Now what? What are the specific measures and metrics to evaluate impact and things that have been done? What are the dollars to begin to address some of the needs of communities that we know, again, are disproportionately impacted, primarily Black people of color communities? So I think that's where the advocacy that's where all of us can become more civically engaged by raising these questions as well as making recommendations about what we can do and the resources that needs to come into the communities and partnering with community-based organizations, faith-based organizations, because government can't do it alone. I recall many times after not being in office due to term limits. Speaking before the city council, asking for dollars, and I would often say to them, you, meaning the city council, should give community-based organizations whatever they ask for, of course, with accountability and transparency, because government could never do what community-based organizations do. And that's yeah. just that. And I think you, we can go a long way, but to your point, yes, now is the time to backtrack and say, okay, these were bold statements, really very good, but now where do we go from here in terms of putting really, you know, some meat on the bones? Well, the last thing I want to want to ask you about related to that, because you talked about recommendations. So not only asking the question in terms of, okay, the resolution, now what? But then also being able to offer recommendations and strategies that should be taken. So what are some of those urgent things that if you had, you know, Biden across, you know, across the table from you, if you had Governor Hochul across the table from you or any other governor from any other state or local mayor who just passed a resolution on this urgent need. And remember, resolutions are just saying, we should do this thing, but not necessarily law or policy that says, and here we're going to, here's how we do it. What are those top things you say, okay, immediately we need to do these things in order to address these issues? Well, first of all, I like to start again with data. I think the data should be looked at to just even acquire a better understanding of what the problems are and based on the data that can take us into some, you know, specific actions. For example, if we wanted to look at maternal health, we know about the, the fact that uh, Black women have higher rates, uh, death rates due to maternal health than white women. What are the, some of the resources that we can put into those communities and I think there's a bill called Mummies Act at the national level that Congresswoman Presley and uh, Senator Booker put forward that lays out specifically how extending Medicaid beyond just 60 days of postpartum period to one full year, I think it's about 365 days, and to provide resources of Medicaid to women during pregnancy as well as after pregnancy. They talk about something that really caught my attention. I think it was called whole 
um, I don't remember the exact name of it for it, but what it provides homes for women so that during pregnancy, if they needed holistic care, a place they could go and be there throughout the pregnancy to ensure that they receive the services. So what I would do is look at the data and decide on maybe, you know, two or three specifics with our mayor is diabetes. Let's look at diabetes. Here in the city of New York and the state of New York, to my understanding, there are no funds specifically allocated for diabetes education as well as self-management programs that have shown to be very effective. So I would carve out or suggest some areas. Let's look at diabetes. Let's look at sickle cell. What does the data show? What are the existing policies? What are the needs? And let's put some resources and identify ways that we can try to mitigate some of this. Well, wow. I could talk to you for so many <laughs> because I feel that you are a wealth of information. And as you said, your background is expansive, both in elected leadership, but also in public policy and here in New York City. And being able to find for anyone listening in whatever city you are, maybe you can't reach C. Virginia Fields, but there's a C. Virginia Fields in your community. <laughs> To be able to glean this information from and start with data and make recommendations. You know, one of the things that I say on the show a lot is we often treat those who are in elected office as if they're rock stars and they know everything. And I always say, you know, they know a little, they they know a lot about one or two things and then everything else, <laughs> they're being led by somebody else. So why not it? Why should that not, that other person not be you? <laughs> to be able to provide that feedback, that information, that data to be able to make effective change. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you. And I just enjoyed this really, you know, sort of forced me to think about a lot of things. <laughs> but one thing I would say that I find certainly important in the work that I do, Joy, is education is still so important, whether it is yeah. educating elected leaders or community people about what the issues are and uh, helping to mobilize them and empowering them to take action. When we do that, we see big changes and we can see big changes. And in the field of health, that's really what I like to see more people, uh, you know, take some time to educate yourself. And we do education and awareness around the country. Obviously, we've been doing it more through webinars over the last two years now, but that is very powerful. Education, awareness leads to advocacy and action. Thank you so very much for taking the time. Thank you and all the best to you. And we will regroup again one day. <laughs> yes, we will. Thank you. We'll be right back with more Sunday Civic. How can it be?
Well, I want to thank the Virginia Fields for making time to talk to us today. And I have some homework for you. It's a little, you know, quick thing. You know we like hearing the stories of First Civic Actions. I'm going to ask you to ask that question to someone within your own network or your own family. Ask them what their First Civic Action was. Maybe it's someone in your family, an uncle or an auntie that you don't get to talk to very much or you heard rumors of a story of them participating in some kind of civic action. Maybe it's someone in your town. Hell, even ask the librarian. (laughs) If you go to the library, that requires you to actually go to the library, which is not a bad idea. But I want you to ask someone else in your network what their first civic action was and have a conversation with them about it. Perhaps you will uncover stories that you've never heard before or issues that you can go off and research. Just opening that dialogue with someone, whether it's in your family, in your network, or even in your community, perhaps the well-known activists in your community and sort of ask them about their origins as well. So that's your homework for this week. Really quick (laughs) to ask someone else what their first civic action was. And then I want to hear about it. So you can tweet at me, you can put it on Facebook, you can send an email whatever you want to do, but I'd love to hear those stories of how people are engaging or what the origin is of them becoming civically engaged. That's all I have for this Sunday. We'll be back next Sunday with more civic lessons you need to take civic action. Have a good one.